Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and F1 is back after the summer shutdown this weekend, with Max Verstappen expected to pick up where he left off before the break with a third consecutive home victory at Zandvoort. But what needs to happen in the second half of the season to make it a thriller, and what will be the storylines to watch out for? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us with all the answers are Glenn Freeman and Ben Anderson. Well, Glenn, we haven't had you on for a while. Are you energised by the impending return of Formula One? I think so. Yeah, I, I'm more energised by that than I am by the fact that I had a week off looking after my kids. <laughs> so I came back more tired than I was when uh, the F1 season went on pause. But yeah, looking forward to it. I feel like we've, we're going to have a lot of races in a quite short space of time. And I'm kind of glad that unlike you, Scott and Mark, I won't be travelling to a bunch of them because that would make me, that would make me even more tired. There are some great places to go in the back end of the season, though. Some really, really great ones to look forward to. So uh, I'm quite excited about. And you get longer there, I suppose, as well, don't you, when you do the flyaways? Yeah, exactly. I quite like the back end of the season because I I tend to do like the US races and through to Abu Dhabi all as one trip, which I quite enjoy. But anyway, enough of my uh, travel plans. trotting. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, well, as you know, luxuriating in first class, all that kind of thing, private jets. That's just the uh, the standard lifestyle. That just, says, that just says we're paying you too much. I'm like Neymar with his <laughs> private... Uh, Jet. Private 747, was it? Something ridiculous, anyway. Uh, ben Anderson, not a private jet user as yet, but how's life with you? You must be looking forward to Zandvoort. I have been on a private jet once, coming back from a race meeting, actually. But I don't regularly use them, no. <laughs> well, we need to hear more about this. So I was doing a, a race for Autosport. Uh, it was a Renault weekend. I can't remember the name of the series. They came up with this kind of GT touring car hybrid thing i think it was called the rs trophy and it yeah, supported like it used to support world series yeah so there was uh, this time there was lmp3 on the on the um bill and also formula renault 2.0 anyway i finished the race weekend it's the one that ed likes to remind me i got done for track limits at spielberg many times of course you um, did of course, I've, yeah. I've so. got a great frame grab of you missing track limits at the last <laughs> corner by about seven postcodes there was there was there was a there was a safety car restart. So in my defence, the tyres were a bit cold and I had a sniff of a podium. So I was trying to get a run on the guy ahead. Anyway, I messed it up, went wide, got penalised, dropped back. I was a bit disappointed. But after the race, I bumped into Jonathan Palmer, um, obviously XF1 driver, multiple UK circuit owner. His One of his sons was racing in Formula Renault the same weekend. And he came up to congratulate me on my performance and was saying, oh, you're doing a good job good race. I was like, yeah, disappointed about the outcome, etc. And uh, for some reason, we got talking about my itinerary on the way home. I was due to drive to um, Vienna and then get some kind of easy jet flight or whatever back to the UK. And he said, oh, no, don't worry about that. I'll fly you home. Come on my plane. So we got a short hop over to the, the airport nearby and uh, flew in his jet uh, back to Biggin Hill, I think we ended up in. Yes. And then he took me in his helicopter I lived in uh, in Lingfield at the time, and there's a race course in Lingfield. So he, he got clearance to land on the race course in his helicopter, and that meant I could walk from there back to my house. And I arrived home before I was due to take off from Vienna originally. Wow. A triumph, a triumph. I don't have any good private jet <laughs> stories, though I did once pick up Keki and Nico Rosberg from a, uh, from a private jet 
landing. I think I went to Biggin Hill. It was either Biggin Hill or Farnborough, one of the two. I was being a chauffeur that day, so uh, that's the closest I've got. But uh, if you're picking them up, that sounds like an autosport award story. Exactly, yeah. But you could you could drive the car onto the uh, onto the um, not the runway, but the uh, the place where you park the planes. <laughs> I don't know the terminology. I'm not an expert. On that. <laughs> anyway, that's the best I can do in terms of uh, anecdotes about private jets. But anyway, let's go on to uh, our matter at hand. Now, our format today is going to be. Everybody's going to pick out some things they want to see in the second half of the season by way of a preview of the final 10 weekends. So we're going to rotate between us. So we'll go with you first, Ben. What do you want to see? Okay. I want to see Red Bull and specifically Max Verstappen defeated in a straight fight before the end of the season. And straight fight is significant there, isn't it? Not just not winning a race, but beaten. Yes. I I mean, I would settle for some kind of chink in the the Red Bull armour, some kind of as yet unforeseen reliability problem that strikes. And then we get a battle between the non-Red Bull cars for actual victory rather than everyone saying, oh, what a great battle it is behind Verstappen this season. But I would prefer if he was beaten in a straight fight because then it would give me hope for the following season and maybe the season after that it's not just going to be Verstappen and Red Bull walking over Formula One relentlessly and endlessly. I think it's now 23 races since they were last beaten. Leclerc in Austria, 2022, and Verstappen's won 20 of those races. It was uh, Interlagos uh, last year. Russell won it. Oh, Interlagos. No, of but course, you're right. Don't do George yes. Russell out of a victory. But, but of course, that, that was a race that Verstappen could perhaps have won had he not had the clash with Hamilton. So, yeah, had uh, he not yeah, driven into Hamilton, yeah. That well, was sort of a straight fight, but also not quite. It was, it was slightly distorted. See, I've been so blinded by Red Bull's crushing dominance this year. I've forgotten all about Mercedes last win in Formula One. Okay, so those numbers are wrong. But anyway, it's felt like way too long. And as you say, Ed, maybe not technically a straight fight either, whereas Austria was. It was Leclerc versus Verstappen, wasn't it? And Verstappen had a bit of front tyre trouble, I think, graining and what have you. And, and Ferrari were obviously relatively more competitive at that point. So, yeah, I'm longing for some kind of return to that dynamic where you're not absolutely convinced that Verstappen's just going to win the race, even if he doesn't qualify at the front, um, and you're just wondering who's going to finish second behind him. It's a big ask, though, isn't it? Because the gap is is so big. I, you know, obviously, that's what you want to see, Ben, but in your in your own head, how realistic is it, particularly the straight fight element? If you look at how much ground somebody's got to make up or Red Bull's somehow got to seed over the remaining races, what's the likelihood, would you say, of that happening? I think, honestly, it's really small, sadly. I think Monaco was the best chance, um, but Verstappen obviously pulled pole position out of nowhere in the final sector and that, that set him up. Aston a bit strategically cautious in the race. Looking at street circuits where you feel like Red Bull is a little bit more vulnerable because of the qualifying relative deficit they have compared to race pace, then you start to think about Singapore and and maybe Vegas, which is obviously a new track, so you never know what's going to happen. But they're not like Monaco. They're much faster circuits, I think. Vegas on paper looks that way. Singapore, we know, is... Plus, you can overtake at Singapore. I imagine you'll be able to overtake in Vegas as well. Yeah, that's what it looks like to me. You know, Vegas looks closer to the Jeddah end of street circuits than the Monaco end. So even if you know, Verstappen suffers from a qualifying mishap like he did in Singapore last year, I can still see him recovering. He didn't make it last year. He had a bad race in Singapore, but I feel like he's in a better place and the car's in a better place this year. So I don't imagine even if Red Bull somehow short fuel him again and he gets bumped down, that he won't just charge through the field. There's a chance, obviously, Perez gets it together on a track like Singapore and you have a straight fight between him and Verstappen. Like Does that count then? Baku. Does Perez beating Max in a straight fight count for you? No, it doesn't because uh, I want to see a non-Red Bull team or driver get into the fight. Otherwise, we're just going to see, yes, occasional examples if Perez keeps his seat of him taking the fight to Max maybe once, twice, three times a season. But we won't have a championship battle. It's not like the Mercedes days where Rosberg was 
quite close to Hamilton and could disrupt him. And actually, there was enough needle there and Mercedes playing it in a way whereby they let the two of them go at it most of the time. This is Perez desperately trying to hang on to a much better driver in the same car. He's not going to do it across the balance of the season. So we need someone else to get into that mix and take the fight to Max and Red Bull. Um, I don't care who it is. I just want it to be somebody yeah, it's very much the race pace advantage in particular, which has been crushing. That means that's a pretty big ask. Glenn, what do you want to go for for your first pick? Well, uh, on a similar theme, I, I I did feel like Ben sort of earlier in the season. I think whenever there's a dominant team, you know, whether it's Ferrari back in the day, Mercedes in the early hybrid years, if you want to go back really far, you know, McLaren or Williams in the 80s and 90s, you want to see other people win. You want You want to see variety, but... I've changed my mind over the summer break, being able to give this some some time to think about it. I've actually decided that this year, because this is the most likely a clean sweep for a team has ever looked, I've decided I want to see history and I want it to happen because I think wow. we've had we've had so many examples now of, of a dominant team who gets beaten a couple of times and it's nice in the moment to see someone else win. You know, George, George Russell last year that Ben forgot... <laughs> um, and, and the, you know, when you used to get the odd Red Bull or Ferrari nicking a win from Mercedes uh, in sort of 15, uh, 14, 15, 16. So we've had all those seasons where where you end up adding up the percentages. You know, did did Mercedes win a higher percentage than McLaren did in 88 and crunching all those numbers? And they're all quite similar. So let's see something different. Let's let's settle the debate once and for all. We won't need to crunch those numbers anymore because we'll have a 100 percent record for a team. I appreciate there's a bit of short-term thinking there because the kind of the short-term big story of finally some a team has won every race could potentially be quite damaging for F1 and, and might not set us up. The key is that then you need a closer fight next year because then actually if you come off the back of a clean sweep and you get some other teams in the mix next year, that's when a potentially negative story for F1 becomes a brilliantly positive one because there'll be so much hype around the start of next season. That might be wishful thinking for somebody to make up that amount of ground. But yeah, I, I think we've seen we've seen the top team lose a couple of races a season plenty of times now. I want to see something different. I want to finally see some A team win every race. And I feel like this is this is the closest we've ever ever been to that. And I feel like Red Bull are the most capable and they have the most capable car and certainly at least lead driver, to deliver that as well. I added an extra fudge factor for any time this record's talked about that this will cast aside, because obviously people also talk about 1952 when Ferrari won all the proper world championship races, but of course the anomalous Indy 500 was part of the championship that year, and of course Ferrari did not win that, although Alberto Ascari was world champion, did compete in the 500 that year, so I don't really count 52, but it will remove that asterisk, so I can I can see the uh, the appeal of that one a sense of dread at that possibility Ben I do have a sense of dread because I just feel somehow if it happens then it just rolls and rolls and rolls I mean you could make the argument that the the teams that have dropped the ball this year Mercedes and Ferrari if they just let Red, let Red Bull have it and focus on having a really strong winter and coming out of the blocks fast and fighting next year then it doesn't matter Equally, still be half a second back. Still, yeah. I, I mean, again, this is wishful thinking. You could argue the race that I forgot about, um, although you can technically argue it wasn't a straight fight, maybe, that George Russell won. That gave Mercedes this conviction that actually they were going to be quite competitive this year, that they were finding momentum themselves. And of course, that proved to not be the case. You know, the start of this season was a relative disaster still. And they've had to do even more work ahead of 24. So maybe... Red Bull losing a race or two before the end of the season makes no odds. It's just an anomaly. And then we head into 24 and they do their work like everyone else does. And they come out of the blocks next year even stronger. I think that would be bad for F1. It's, obviously, there are, are factors behind it that make sense. But it's a bit embarrassing and quite ironic that Formula One's developed this whole structure to make the field closer and the racing more competitive and the championship more competitive and that is happening 
in certain aspects if you look at the steps McLaren have made and how much more compressed the midfield has become. From second to tenth. But yes, from second what? to tenth, it's working really well. But there's now one team streaking away with it. They are more dominant than Mercedes were at the start of the hybrid era. Now, I think it's... I haven't crunched the numbers for a while. It was borderline when we last talked about this a few months ago. I think it's unquestionably the case now. And of course, if they run to the end of the season unbeaten, you it's not a question anymore, like you said, Glenn. I just... I just feel like it's a really bad look for Formula One that Red Bull are just so far ahead. And it's not their fault. They've done a great job. You know, Mercedes and Ferrari have got a lot to answer for, as we've, it's everybody as else's we've said fault. before. It is everybody else's fault. But it just it just shows again that when you you mix up the regulations, you always have this period of flux and the possibility that one team just steals an advantage, like Mercedes did with the engine engines at the start of 2014 and now Red Bull has with the the ground effect return and it just takes ages for the other teams to catch up and I I still fear a little bit for Ferrari and Mercedes that the other elements behind Formula 1's drive for better equality and a closer competition the cost cap and the, the limitations it's hamstringing those teams those teams that would normally spend their way out of trouble let's let's face it can't do that in the same way so they have to knock on for another season, another season, keep trying to identify the thing that they've messed up. They can't do that so easily because they're restricted. And I know that there's balance of performance now in terms of aerodynamic testing restrictions, and that is helpful, but it's not particularly helpful if you if you don't know what you're looking for. And also if you're used to working in a way where you might send people off down 10 or 15 different avenues and then come together and pick the best one, now you kind of need to have advanced knowledge and and commit and hope you get it right. And you can see Mercedes and Ferrari slowly backing out of their respective avenues. It's just lost time. All the while they're doing that, the, the two mightiest teams that should, in theory, have the best chance of challenging Red Bull, just look nowhere near doing it. In fact, McLaren looked like the team that's more likely to end up in second place, or at least second best, before the end of the season. And you would never have said that in Bahrain. I do want to throw in that I don't think it's necessarily entirely cost cap related that people aren't catching up because I'm pretty sure Mercedes had seven consecutive back-to-back championships at a point where spending wasn't limited and others weren't catching up quite in the same way. I know there was a, a general catch-up, but I, I'm not entirely letting Mercedes and Ferrari have that as an excuse because if there was no cost cap, Red Bull would spend more. So True. it's all about Red Bull's understanding. But this all ties into what's going to be my first pick, which is I want to see at least one of Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston Martin, and I'm going to put McLaren in this slightly unfairly, given the phrase I'm going to use is get their act together. In terms of, I want to see clear progress. This isn't necessarily they have to be beating Red Bull, but I want to be convinced that the direction they're going in proves they've got the understanding built of the underlying science of what they're trying to achieve in order to take that big step next year when they can change the architecture of the car and unleash some more performance potential. That's the key thing for me. And who of those four teams do you think is most likely? <laughs> That's the problem. It's really, it's it's really, tricky, really hard it? because you'd say, well, look at McLaren's trend, but McLaren have still got some fundamental aero issues with the way their car behaves that they need to get over. They've been battling those for a while, so I need to see evidence they can improve that. They've made the car faster, but the characteristics are still there. Ferrari for a couple of weekends you start thinking yeah they're making good progress then they slip back and I see Ferrari kind of going around in circles doing similar things but they've made a few changes and gone in the right direction Mercedes of course I keep thinking they're going to take a step and they appear to have done but it's just full storm after full storm after full storm and Aston Martin obviously their challenge is to claw back some of the ground they've lost as others have uh, have improved so I wouldn't really like to back any of them because I think there's big asterisks against all of them, which is probably why I've lumped them together, in that I want at least one of those to give me reason to back that horse. I guess historically, yeah, you probably do have to go with Mercedes, don't you? But we could have been saying that for the past 18 months and it hasn't got that far. Yeah, if I had to pick one, I would go with Mercedes. I completely agree with you, Ed, that they've all got major flaws that undermine the potential Mercedes just seemed to be completely lost with the fundamental understanding of 
what the regs need or at least they've gone down a route whereby they thought they could outwit everybody and it's turned out to be wrong and now they need to kind of catch up and it's just taking them too long ferrari always start well and then just can't build on that and now with all the chaos that surrounded the team since Bonotto's left I know Vasseur's doing his best to calm things down but it'll take time for his new recruits to come in to bed in for him to get the culture the way he wants they're going to be looking to the the new rules set down the line 26 I think before they can do what they usually do which is start strongly and McLaren and Aston are coming from much lower bases so although Aston started strongly you can see as they've developed they've started to run into trouble which midfield teams often do you know when it's trying to chase those more granular bits of performance they can make mistakes get a bit lost get a bit stuck and McLaren you know they've made a big step from a very poor starting point it's then what do you do from there how do they build on that how do they take a a big leap to be consistently second best they haven't proved they can do that yet so it comes back to Mercedes if they have truly managed to work backwards and figure out exactly what they've done wrong and write that for 2024. That's the big hope. The key thing is that I think Mercedes and Ferrari are the two with no excuses for next year. The the narrative, I'd say more from Mercedes, but we've seen a bit of this from Ferrari as well, is they once their big upgrades didn't really make a massive dent in um, Red Bull's advantage, suddenly it was, oh, well, the upgrades were just a step. That's all we can do. And now because of the cost cap, we need to wait until next year to do a new chassis in, and that will fix all the things that like, we know what we're doing wrong now. We just need next year to be able to put all those things right. So they are going to be held to a very high standard at the start of next year. And if they're still, if they make a tiny step, but Red Bull make a big one or Red Bull keep the gap the same, those teams have even then have no more excuses because they spent this year their excuse for not catching up this year is that oh they need to make fundamental architecture changes they're going to do those over the winter and if they still haven't caught up then there's no reason for us to have any faith that under this rule set they know what they're doing yeah and they've got to still show progress in the back end of the year as well because the rules are stable yes there are some fundamental limitations you're pushing up against but it's when I talk about the underlying science I want to see that progression to show they really understand what they're doing because there'll be a there'll be a, a local maximum for what you can achieve with various parts of this car but they've not got to that yet Mercedes none of these teams have so you've got to raise your overall limit with next year's car but you've got to keep pushing along within that and the idea of sort of switching off one car and switching to the next one doesn't generally happen as cleanly as that. So, yeah, that's the key thing for me. And it all ties into them being able to give Red Bull at least a slightly harder time. So, obviously, the closer they get, the more likely they are to pick up the pieces if things go wrong for Red Bull. But I wouldn't hold my breath for any of them winning in a straight fight, as Ben was hoping for earlier in this section. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let's move on to round two now, Ben. What's your second pick for something you'd like to see in the second half of the year? I would like to see Daniel Ricciardo sweep all the doubts away and prove to everybody that he's back, back to his best, belongs on the grid and belongs in the top car. I think that's a fair point. He had a promising start though, didn't he? The first two race weekends, Hungary was was decent, Spa a bit more up and down for obvious reasons. So he's got a foundation to build from, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. I think it's gone okay so far. I mean, he said himself he'd take having two races before the summer break because it gives you something to build on, some questions to throw at the engineers, I think was the phrase he used. But I think, although it's only a sample set of two, those two events have done more to 
burnish Yuki Tsunoda's reputation than they have to convince everybody that Daniel Ricciardo is back. I mean, Tsunoda's spa weekend was excellent, one of his best, I think. And Ricciardo was kind of nowhere near that. Hungary, I think Tsunoda was a bit unlucky. And Tsunoda was quicker in Hungary, definitely, but he yeah, did I make think- the mistake in practice that cost him the front wing. And he was very unfortunate in the race because they sort of had reverse strategies almost. And I, I don't think we can say Ricardo destroyed Tsunoda in Hungary by no, any stretch of imagination. Tsunoda was quicker. Yeah, it looked to me the same, that the underlying pace was a bit stronger, as maybe you'd expect, considering he's been embedded in that team for a few years now. And Ricardo was a bit lucky with Russell getting bumped out in Q1, which allowed uh, Ricardo to progress, although he did a good job then in Q2. So there's some green shoots of recovery, but it's not the slam dunk that you would expect and that fans will expect from a guy who's won multiple Grand Prix and you know been very, really close to Max Verstappen in the same car early in his career. Will he get back to that level over the remaining races? I'm not so sure. I've been trying to think of analogous analogous examples of drivers coming back mid-season who've got reputation, damaged reputation, and, and need to do what Ricardo's doing. And it's hard to think of them, really. I mean, the closest one is maybe Kimi Raikkonen, but he had two seasons off and then a winter and then came back with Lotus. And obviously that went quite well. But his 2009 wasn't as terrible as Daniel Ricciardo's 2022 was. Raikkonen actually did quite a good job in that terrible Ferrari. And obviously the seasons before that, although Felipe Massa, you know, one that came close to winning the 2008 World Championship, Raikkonen was champion before. I feel like Kimi's drop-off wasn't quite as pronounced and therefore obviously had a bigger break as well. So it doesn't quite line up. It's it's like a, a hybrid of what Kimi did. Alonso obviously had a similar break, but came back having never damaged his reputation of what he did before. So it's a lot it's a lot of work for Ricardo, a, a tall order. I I I hope that he can he can make it happen, but I'm I'm not convinced that he does more than really stay where he is for another season. And if Red Bull are looking to replace Perez at some point, I just feel like they'll have better options on the market. You know, they'll they'll be looking what happens with Max, whether he sticks out the full length of his contract and if they're worried that he might just walk away, which he's absolutely entitled to, they're going to need somebody who can step in and be number one. Someone like Lando Norris definitely fits that bill. Someone like Daniel Ricciardo, given what's happened, isn't the automatic slam dunk number one he would have been a few years ago. I'm coming in before Ed says uh, Jacques Villeneuve for a driver who came back with a damaged reputation mid-season. I think the chances of us seeing definitive proof that Ricardo's fixed it all this year is probably unlikely. We do need to see an upwards trajectory. I was trying to work out, when you guys were talking about Sonoda, I'm trying to work out if there's a scenario where both Ricardo and Sonoda come out of this with enhanced reputations. And I just think the way F1 works, that's probably not possible. Even if it's true, even if they both push each other to a higher level, I just think if if Ricardo does well, but Sonoda matches him or occasionally beats him, people are going to either say, well, that means that Sonoda's the guy with the upside here. He's the one who you should look at. Or they're going to say, well, Ricardo can't be that good because he can't get the better of Sonoda. I, I suspect he's going to need more than these races to to prove it. And that probably means a full season in the Alpha Tauri next year. Um, and that that would just be a that would be a crunch season for him because the car is limiting yes but he's he's got to with what he's got he's got to show something pretty spectacular I think for for any other outcome other than Alpha Tauri being his swan song yeah I think that's the priority isn't it for Ricardo isn't it he's got to shore himself up in that team yes he's got a very good chance of staying on next year because they're planning a rebrand Ricardo's a great person to have as the center point of that but he's still got to show he can do it. I do like the fact he's had that little foundation run a couple of weekends. He admitted he wasn't expecting to get that because it was always likely to be the second half of the season. They made a change over the break, but then they thought, Nick DeVries can go. We've decided we don't want him, so let's make the change. So I think that rolling start will be quite handy for him. This actually connects to what was going to be my second pick, so I'm going to bump you down the pecking order, Glenn, and uh, do mine first because my pick for what I want to see happen is Sergio Perez to be better and that's not 
saying he's terrible and I need him to be a better driver. I want to see Sergio Perez doing what he does, focusing on himself, on getting the best out of what he does, on getting the best out of the car, not getting too caught up in trying to chase Verstappen and that kind of thing. That will come. If he does a job brilliantly well himself, then he will get to Verstappen's level. Obviously, he won't, but no, he won't. he's not going to be able to force the issue. He's got to do what Sergio Perez does to the best of his ability, because then he will be peak Sergio Perez, which is better than the driver we've seen at times this year. That was it five consecutive failures to get to Q3. Pretty inexcusable in that car. So I just want to see Perez being stronger. Does anyone think I'm being too optimistic there? Mm, I, I think it's important for him to do that to because that's all Red Bull actually want from him. They don't want Sergio Perez thinks he's a title contender version that you know we we briefly discussed at the start of this year because he had some favorable tracks. They they just want him to yeah, that they hired him to be what you're describing there, be the best version of Sergio Perez, finish finish second to Max as much as possible, always make Q3 in the best car by a mile. Um and on your day if if things work out for you and maybe if something goes a little bit wrong for Max, you know, we're talking about, or we were talking earlier, can Red Bull win every race? I suspect at some point over this run to keep that going, they will need Perez to be there in the backup position in case something goes wrong for Max. So if he wants a future at Red Bull beyond his current contract, regardless of what Ricardo does, because if Ricardo's not up to it and Perez isn't up to it, they'll find someone else. If he wants to keep this drive for longer, yeah, he's got to stop thinking about, can I beat Max to a championship? It's, can I back Max up in the way that I've been brought in to do? Yeah, this is his Valtteri Bottas versus Lewis Hamilton moment, isn't it? As much as I'd like to see Perez take it to Max and it be more like Rosberg Hamilton in the early hybrid Mercedes years, the reality is Verstappen is a vastly superior driver. So Perez needs to be like he was at Spa, qualifying near the front, finishing a comfortable second, holding off the rest of the pack. Horn has been saying since Spain, really, hasn't he, sending out those messages that Perez has, has got the sort of wrong attitude. He's put too much pressure on himself. He, he's got overexcited based on the favourable tracks you mentioned, Glenn, thinks he's got a shot, had a rude awakening, completely crumbled, and then it's taken the best part of half a season to piece himself back together. That's fine when they're in the situation they're in now as a team. And maybe that persists into next year so he can get away with it more again. But at some point, Red Bull will have a threat. And when they do have that threat, they need their number two driver to be the best number two he can be to help Max. They don't need Perez trying to match Max ending up out in Q2 and therefore giving Ferrari or Mercedes or McLaren or Aston, whoever it is that we hope gets into that fight, a free run at max. And the thing is, that's not just accepting a poor role in the second half of the season. That means he can be regularly on the podium. He should be looking to add a win or two. He should be looking to make sure he closes out second in the championship. He's very well on course for that, to be fair at the moment. Okay, everyone wants to be world champion, but he, he needs to finish second in the championship. He can add some wins, consolidate his position, because he should be looking to be at Red Bull not just beyond the, at the end of this season, but beyond the end of next season. He's under contract for next year, but that's what his objective should be. And there will be days when he can take on Verstappen, potentially because Verstappen's had some bad luck. And obviously the two races, Perez has won this year. There has been some misfortune for Verstappen over the weekend that's contributed to that. But actually Perez has closed it out very well. So that's the Perez I want to see a little bit more of in the second half of the season. Glenn, what's your delayed second pick? Yeah, well, after you bumped me back in the order, I'm the odd one out here because I, I don't have a a Red Bull or Alpha Tauri driver-related wish, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, this might be bad news for Alpha Tauri, given they're at the back at the moment. I, I I want to see, and I don't think we're going to see, uh, the new team's process result in at least one new team being let in. Let's expand the grid. Um, you guys ex- explained very well. I think it was Scott explained very well how this situation is basically going to play out you know there's going to be an agreement that the FIA basically say um, Andretti and probably high tech both meet the FIA's criteria but then F1 is going to say you don't meet our commercial criteria you're not having a piece of the Concord agreement we're not letting you in because F1 and the 10 teams have agreed that F1 is now a closed shop just for them and I, I don't like that I don't like that attitude from the teams I get that 
you know, they are the ones that rode out the storm, survived the storm when things were tough um, in years past. But I don't think riding out that storm then entitles you to say no one else is now allowed to join the party. Um, I think that that's a level of self-interest that we we shouldn't be encouraging in F1. I suspect when this gets announced, if it goes that way, that is going to go down very badly with the fan base. And a lot of what F1 has done in recent years, amid its boom in popularity, has been making out that it's a much more fan-focused championship. And I think this is going to tell us that actually that's not the case at all. I understand the caveat often comes up in this situation of the, the new teams that came in 2010 when we got all those new teams, I think you had 24 car grid. I remember thinking this is going to be brilliant. And they were miles off the pace. They were always eliminated in Q1. Uh, they, they, they weren't available addition, but those teams were screwed over on the way in. They were promised a budget cap version of F1 with, that would give them performance breaks to allow them to compete with the free spending teams. This isn't like that now. That These these teams, if they came in, they would have to be very well-funded and well-supported, yes. They would probably come in at the back. But as Ben was saying earlier, F1 is setting itself up now to be much more competitive from front to back or from second to back, as we discussed. So I think it's a good time to give new teams who who at least meet the criteria for being credible give them a chance so i i really i really sympathize with those teams if and when they get rejected i know michael andretti rubs some people up the wrong way and can be a bit of a, a prickly character but f1's got its own prickly characters already i don't mind throwing another one into the mix and I think it's a shame. This this is a good opportunity. F1's put itself on a solid footing and it's using that solid footing as an excuse not to expand the grid when actually I think that makes it an opportunity to do that. Yeah, it'll create a very interesting situation because the FIA's position is, and I've spoken to Mohamed Ben Suleim about this, is that, well, the Concord Agreement allows 12 teams. So why have that allowing 12 teams if we're just going to completely shut the door to potentially credible ones? So you've got to have a, a process. And then... The key then is what basis you're accepting or turning them down on. And I'll be very interested because obviously the teams in F1 have talked about a new team needs to add value. And I remember, I think I asked Toto Wolf about this earlier in the season because he was talking about they need to add value, they need to do this, they need to do that. And I said, right. And I did ask, what is the measure of that? How do you establish whether they add value? And the answer was a tautology. They add value because they need to add value. It's like, well, it's a nonsense. You've not got a measure there. No, You've not got a measure there, and, and that means they sh- they absolutely should have a bar, but they need to make the bar possible to clear. And I don't, I'm not convinced collectively the teams in F1 are doing that. Yeah, and just before Ben comes in, yeah, I don't think you can you can't make a case for all ten teams that are in at the moment. You can't break them all down individually and say Alpha Tauri, what's your added value at the moment? Haas, what's your added value? We, we've heard the argument is, oh, we don't need an American team, we need an American driver. But one of the things that's been used against Andretti. So what what are Haas bringing? They you know they they're sort of what 60 70% of an F1 team because Ferrari does so much of their technical work. I think if you scrutinize each of the teams that are in there at the moment there's a bunch of those that aren't really adding value. So why is it fair for them in particular to say that and the the teams that are carrying the value it's just greed, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think there are two things at play in the background. One is the paranoia of the COVID period, teams fearing like the whole thing is going to crumble and those that are in at the ground floor weathering the storm, signing up to that agreement that would franchise them, they feel like, and this is obviously self-interest, if they let anyone else in, they become financially more vulnerable again, even though obviously at the same time they're all talking up how much more value they have. You know, Steiner says, we used to get people offering us a pound to buy the team and now we get offers in the hundreds of millions. So they all think, well, we're sitting on a gold mine now. But three years ago, they were, you know, to the wall thinking they might not survive. So it's feast or famine in Formula One from their point of view. And also Formula One itself. I remember Domenicali saying even last summer, I don't think they're fully confident in the viability of every one of the 10 teams they've currently got. You know, he was insistent that if if Andretti wanted to come in, they should look to buy an existing team. Um, We've seen the implosion happening at Alpine and immediately that leads to 
fears that Renault might need to sell up because they're not interested. So yeah, they can buy Alpine in 2026 when they don't meet whatever ridiculous target they've set for the new. <laughs> yeah, 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 the the 3,000 race plan has fallen short. <laughs> so for, you can see from Formula One's point of view, they're thinking, well, if we let in these two teams that don't add value or are not fully competitive, not manufacturer backed or whatever, don't tick whatever box Formula One feels they need to tick looking into the future at 26. We let them in, but then we suddenly got this Alpine problem, Renault pulling out. Who buys that? Who's ready? These The two credible parties are already committed to doing something else and you can't just fuse them. The AlphaTauri team is now consistently being rumoured to be up for sale or its future in doubt because of what's happened at Red Bull and Mataship's passing on and you know that that may be fine but it's not going very well for them at the moment there's an easy option for Red Bull to sell that if they think it's no longer working so you've got it's not difficult to think of two teams that are already vulnerable Hassa perennially talked of as being a team that should be sold or could be sold but at the same time Hass is also defeating the the closed shop model with its technical structure because as you said they they're the one new team that's come in during this era that have survived because they've done it in a very low cost way and had an intensive customer relationship with a big team that still stands i know there's been some movement on the listed parts and obviously a a, a drive in the background to protect independent constructors like williams and mclaren and try and gently push everyone in that direction but the Haas model remains it's viable they've been in the championship for several years now, was it eight seasons near enough? They're competitive enough. You know, they're not at the back. So if you're a new team looking to come in, at the bare minimum, you could copy the Haas model and do it for a relatively low cost. That saves you all this massive capital expenditure that you would need to do if you're going to try and go to town like Aston Martin are. And there aren't that many strolls in the world, obviously. So it's difficult for Formula 1 to fairly justify not letting a new team in and bolstering the grid because it's easier to be competitive than it was in 2010 when those new teams were all screwed over but at the same time I can see why Formula 1's a bit worried when it's not necessarily the case that all the current 10 teams are healthy. It's ultimately a question of you need to make sure you've got a fair set of criteria as as a team's an F1 that's the big question and I'm not totally convinced they are because all they'll do is say prove that you'll bring value to us not set any tests for it and then it'll just never happen so I do think as a general rule F1 should be looking to add two more teams I don't actually mind teams being turned down if they should be turned down because you shouldn't just let people through because it guarantees them a a significant sum of money and that would destabilise the whole financial model of the sport but worthy decent teams there's no reason why you can't have a couple more the F1 regulations even allow 26 cars to start although Concord doesn't but I think a 13th team is going to be some way off We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, let's move on to our third and final round of our what we want to see in the second half of the season. Ben, what are you going to pick? So a slightly left field one for me. I would like to see the Hungarian Grand Prix experimental tyre allocation rolled out more frequently. I know this was done purely for sustainability reasons, but the reason I liked it is that the knock-on competitive impact it had on qualifying actually, I think, was positive and forcing every team and driver to use every compound of tyre through the different stages created a really mixed up situation we had uh 
Zhou Guanyu fastest in Q1. George Russell knocked out. Norris was fastest in Q2, although obviously he does go quick in the early stages of qualifying. We had science falling in that phase unexpectedly. And then we had, which was the key bit for me, a genuine battle for pole position between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. Verstappen frequently this season under the normal tyre allocation has been able, he's been so quick, even though the Red Bull is not at its strongest in qualifying, that he has an extra set of soft tyres available for Q3 while everyone else has burned through because it's so close between second and 10th, as we talked about earlier. Everyone else has burned through an extra set trying to make sure they don't get eliminated in Q1 or Q2 or whatever. So he gets basically a free run at pole. And we saw at Silverstone, you know, Norris was able to beat his banker lap, but obviously then Verstappen gets another run and is able to secure pole. Hungary, he wasn't able to do that because everyone had the two sets available and it equalised the tyre allocation across everybody. And I think that's a worthy uh, pursuit um, in terms of, we've talked about on Formula One's been talking about, you know, adjusting the DRS system to try and peg Red Bull back in qualifying. And Mark Hughes has written extensively about that. But I think the tyre allocation in Hungary was a, was a much fairer and better way of adjusting the qualifying format in a positive way without unfairly penalising anybody. Well, the good news is you will see that at Monza because that will be the second test. Originally, it was going to be Imola and then Hungary, but now it's Hungary, then Monza with Imola being cancelled. And obviously, to draw on your point a bit more, we won't see it used more in the second half of the season, but what there will be is a decision on whether it's made permanent and it's designed to reduce the number of tyres used. What is a little bit irritating is Pirelli were asked to find a way to use fewer tyres. They did a couple of experimental ones which cuts the number of dry sets by two and then people moan they didn't have as many tyres. It's like, well, unfortunately, <laughs> that's that's if you have fewer sets of tyres, that is fewer sets of tyres. But perhaps it can be connected to changing the free practice structure, etc., etc. There's ways and means to do it. But I do quite like, as you suggested, I, I like the fact that you need to make the car quick and be able to get pace out of all three tyre compounds if you want to have a seriously strong qualifying session. I think that's very interesting. Which is difficult to do as well, you know, because of the way the tyres work and the different temperature windows they've always operated in. Actually, it's a big headache to try and get your car working on all three types. You know, even though, uh, you know, the ranges are a bit closer together than they used to be, it's still the case that we see cars that can fire up the hard tyre don't work the soft tyre as well and vice versa. So it adds that extra element of confusion and jeopardy into qualifying, which uh, um, apart from the Verstappen element is is welcome, I think. Yeah, and what's what's great about that is it's a it's adding some variables, but in a really fair way that creates a genuine engineering challenge for the team. So we're not going, oh, we're going to scramble it this way. Just we're going to create some chaos in the hope that we get a mixed up result. It's here's a genuine challenge. You, you know, you can't you can't run through practice decide that whichever tire is not going to be great for the race. You're, you're just not going to run it. Uh, and you might end up on it if you have to strategically. But yeah, a key point of the weekend, you have to find a way. Blow to the make dust your off car, and do it. <laughs> yeah, make your car work on every set. And that might also mean that you get more interesting racing because in they've had to set up the car in qualifying to work to get a lap time out of all three types of tyre. And that might mean that your setup isn't maximised for what's going to be your ideal race tyre. So you create a, var a variation there as well but yeah you're doing it in a, a same for everybody kind of way you know this isn't this isn't a lottery this is just here's another engineering challenge so i, I think that's great yeah agreed it's a controllable variable i would describe it as in yeah. that it's not random it's an equitable thing to do and it also achieves sustainability objectives so very positive from that perspective glenn what's your second choice will let you have your natural place in the order for part three by chance, mine's kind of related. Well, it is related to qualifying as well, but it's it's related to sprint qualifying. I think the current sprint qualifying format, do they call it sprint shootout? Yeah, um, is rubbish and pointless. What what is it like? Seventy to eighty percent. It's, it's an eighty percent scale model of the current qualifying format, the main one. They just they're all a little bit shorter, um, and I don't I don't really see the point of it. So, I would like to see either. Uh, these sessions become a one-shot qualifying session for everybody. Uh, or, if that's too much, let's replace Q3 or SQ3 um, with a Super Pole session. So, to focus on that first, that would mean you have one shot for the top 10. They go in reverse order. So, whoever um, 
whoever was 10th in Q2 goes first and the guy who was fastest in Q2 goes last. The, the, the benefit, one extra benefit there is that that actually makes Q2 more important because it's no longer about being in the top 10. It's about being as close to the, the, the top of the order in Q2 as possible because you want a favourable position in Q3. So I think it, it carries a benefit of making an earlier part of the qualifying more interesting. It's We were just talking about how Ben's tyre suggestion was a, a really even and fair uh, engineering challenge that might create some variety in a totally equitable way. This doesn't necessarily quite do that. Everyone gets their <laughs> one shot, but they're not on track at the same time. But it's that heightened pressure. I've often watched Q3 and you see somebody somebody good messes up their first attempt in Q3 and you see that the, well, they all come back to the pits at the same time and you look at the order after the first runs in Q3 and you think, if that was the grid, that's more interesting. So I, I like the idea of it getting down to one run, but one run under complete pressure. You don't you don't just get, oh, it's a shorter Q3 and you just go out and do one run. Um, and I would be open to to bringing back the, the, the full one-shot qualifying for everybody. Now, I liked that format at first, but like a lot of people, I got kind of bored of it. It gets a bit samey. Um, it's, you know, it just, it's a bit, it's just a bit repetitive. However, we're just talking about sprint weekends here. That Saturday morning session where I imagine the TV ratings are down anyway. It's, it's a real challenge. If you're a fan trying to follow the whole weekend, it's a challenge when you know you've got to watch the sprint race later that day to also fit in sprint qualifying in the morning. So let's make it something different. And that curiosity factor might make it more of a spectacle. So I'm, I'm not saying bring back one shot qualifying 24 times a year because we we tried it. We've, we've had it in for full seasons before and it was sometimes interesting, but it kind of fell flat as a TV spectacle. And that's why we ended up with Q1, Q2, Q3 for 2006. Um, but I think I think there's potential here for a limited number of these sessions, either one shot qualifying for everybody or a super pole instead of Q3. I really enjoyed one shot qualifying when it was a thing. So I would be I would advocate bringing it back as a full one shot for that for that segment on the sprint weekends. It, I've surprised myself because I thought sprint qualifying or sprint shootout, whatever it's called, was before the season started, definitely a better thing to have than FP3. You know, definitely more likely to watch that than FP3. But actually, in terms of the the cadence of the weekend and the flow, it isn't essential viewing. You know, if you if you're not working the weekend, exactly. it's quite hard to justify. Yeah, if you've got something to sacrifice, it's going to be that you're going to watch qualifying on Friday because that's a big deal. Yeah, or obviously you're going to watch the Grand Prix itself. The sprint day just becomes a bit of a take it or leave it situation and you definitely would prioritize the race in that case now maybe this won't make that many odds but i feel like some random format like one shot which again is a different challenge a different kind of jeopardy just has more chance than that something that as you say is a piecemeal version of something you've already seen the day before that counts for a lot more i think there's a problem there that you go from a really important full qualifying session to exactly the same format the next morning but just not as important like that doesn't work it, in some ways the traditional weekend format of practice sessions that build to qualifying actually is better because you've just got that that sense of momentum coming from the start of the race weekend through to the grand prix and we isolating the sprint day to my surprise, it it doesn't work for me. It it creates a separation in the in the race weekend that I don't like. I think I actually preferred the previous sprint format where the sprint race counted towards the grid because at least you still had the flow, even though you had a a random session still in the morning. So something needs to be done. I'm not I'm not quite sure exactly what the solution is, but I'd be happy to give one shot qualifying a chance just to see if it was a, a better thing to watch. Yeah, it needs something to differentiate it. So you're offering something different. But yeah, Saturdays are inconsequential. I think it's a real backward step, actually. I didn't yeah. object fundamentally to sprint weekends before, but 
it's rendered the race weekend as the three-day weekend much less significant. It's a completely inconsequential day, and that's one of the great things. Saturday's optional, isn't exactly. It, for but a fan. one of the great you don't even care about, about the points. You know, even the points exactly, allocation, yeah. it just you just don't care, do you? Who's got eight points or one from that day? There's so many on offer in the Grand Prix itself, and so many Grand Prix. It doesn't even really make that much difference in the championship, especially when one driver's dominating. So they just feel like pointless extra days. And I think it's also a warning to F1, which under Stefano Domenicali is committed to this more is always more. It's that plus loud music everywhere that seem to be the main two (laughs) strategies. And I think it's actually an object lesson in being a little bit careful because I think it devalues it because the reason an F1 Grand Prix matters is because it matters today who won the 1955 French Grand Prix. It matters because it's a momentous thing. Sprint races no one cares about and it's just diluting the product as far as I'm concerned. And I'd be much happier if it contributed to the grid for the Grand Prix. I'd have no problem problem with that that's not such a a big issue i'm going to pick my final one now very very simple i want to see fernando alonso victory number 33 empires have risen and fallen since he last won in spain (laughs) 2013 that's over 10 years this week in fact is the 20th anniversary of his first grand prix win at the hungaroring so alonso win number 33 he's a great driver i just want to see him on top again that's not through any particular alonso support it's just he is such a brilliant driver his career is so ridiculous i think it would be great for f1 as a whole to see him win again so ed president in chief of alonso fans how and where does this miraculous victory happen in the second half of the season it happens at monaco earlier in the season (laughs) (laughs) right now it's not it's not going to happen i mean the, the Aston Martin needs to be stronger. They say they've got new parts coming. They're hopeful they can hit back a little bit, so it's possible. The one thing I will say, though, is if it does become possible because of the way circumstances arise, Alonso's a driver who will make the most of it. That's the positive thing. So I think if Alonso probably does have the chance to win a Grand Prix this week, uh, this year, then he will take it. But yeah, I'm not confident it'll happen, but wouldn't it be great for F1? Yeah, it would be great for F1. But I imagine what is more likely to happen is he'll make some stonking start in a wet race like Singapore and get wiped out by someone else's accident like he did in the McLaren Honda days and someone else will take the victory instead of him. Yeah, that's pretty much more likely uh, the way it goes with the way his career has gone for the past 10 years or so. But yeah, I think that would be good for F1 and I think that would be a great story. If we're not going to get the Red Bull clean sweep, what better thing to see than an Alonso win and an Aston Martin win? Yeah, I totally agree with that. Obviously, I advocated for Red Bull making history, but if someone has to beat them this year, I'd love for it to be Alonso. I think there was a in that early run of podiums uh, early in the season, even Max Verstappen said, didn't he? He said at some point it's going to go wrong for us, and he basically said Alonso's going to be the guy, this to, guy to do it. Yeah, <laughs> so it it's actually on the on that front, it's been a shame to see to see Aston Martin hit this hit this kind of bump in the road. And it's a reminder, I think, to everybody that that progress is never completely linear. Um, And Aston Martin did a great job to get to where they got to at the start of this year. Now they've got some challenges to overcome. That's a lesson for McLaren as well, uh, although they've had their own harsh lessons this season. But (laughs) the the idea that there have been so many points over the last decade where you thought, that's it, Alonso, he's still great, but he's never going to find himself in a front-running car again. He's just There's something about the way the F1 driver market is made up and his knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's it's. I think it's because it's felt so far away at various points that the idea of it now happening is absolutely superb. I was, I was talking to one of our colleagues, Val Harunchi, yesterday uh, about um, Emerson Fittipaldi's sort of late, career revival in IndyCar in the early 90s and I had to explain to him Emo was basically you know he felt like a really old guy who's you know having a second career in IndyCar he was the age Alonso is now Alonso has maintained this phenomenal level of performance and and fitness and drive and and it's mental and physical he's got all the attributes still you don't look at him and go well, there's an old guy. You know, he's going to need a bit of luck. He's he's a he's a phenomenal specimen of a of a person and of a racing driver. And I think it would be a huge reward for his his persistence and his determination and the fact that still into his forties, nothing gets in the way of being the best F one driver he can possibly be. So yeah, as you say, Ed, what better reward than finally getting win number thirty three and we were all we were all working in or around F1 in 2013. If somebody had said that afternoon in Spain, 
you're going to be talking 10 years from now about if he can win another race, we'd have laughed them out of the building. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Certainly 10 years, given he's been on the grid for the vast majority of that time as well. So, yeah, truly astonishing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's all we're asking for. That's the ninth thing we've asked for, nine things we've demanded from Not the much. second half of the season. <laughs> we don't want much, F1, come on. Let's hope we at least get a few of them. But I think it's going to be an interesting second half of the season because even when you do have domination, there's always great storylines to follow. So, yeah, I think the next 10 race weekends are going to be really exciting. So stay with us to follow those in great detail. Thanks very much, Ben and Glenn. I'll leave you to get prepared for the Zanvort weekend which is going to be a busy one for everyone whether they're there or working at base head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there have a look at our video output as well on youtube both short and long form videos there and check out our other podcasts including the race f1 tech show with gary anderson bring back v10s starring glenn freeman which tells classic f1 stories we've also got an indycar podcast formula e podcast MotoGP podcast hours of listening pleasure for you there well, we're now going to head to Zandvoort, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Dutch Grand Prix. The Athletic.